0: Good morning. Um, our scripture today comes from 2 Peter 2, 3 through 10. Yeah. Um, and it says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw saw and heard, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful they do do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones.
1: All right. Good morning. Um, So, um, a little caveat up front. Everything I wrote for today, I wrote prior to Friday. Um, some of it will be applicable, some of it will not. Um, but in eight years, I've never preached a sermon based upon what we're seeing on the news, um, mainly because <clears throat> I'm not a reactionary person, and I, and I don't think that um, reacting is the best way to live. I believe the gospel is out in front. I believe God is pulling us forward, and I believe that um, by moving forward and focusing on the things of God today, we are... Uh, doing ourselves a favor in the future, and that it's every generation's sort of uh, duty to proclaim the message of God in a way that is out in front of everything else. Um, The Word of God is not about reacting to things in the world. It's about what God has declared that He's already taking us towards. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, And so I'm going to open up in a word of prayer, and we're going to dive into this. And again, some of it Maybe applicable to the things that, that we've already talked about this morning. Um, for the most part, it's going to be more personal for each of us in what we see um, in the lives of those that we know around us. So let's pray. Father, give us peace, give us grace, give us mercy, give us understanding and wisdom, give us humility, um, and most of all, give us, give us love. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move relatively fast. I wrote a lot of notes, and... Uh time here so um i'm gonna i'm gonna get moving here um this is a really interesting passage you may have noticed if you're not familiar it's always great like if it's like you're, i'm, I'm gonna, i think i'm gonna go i've never been to church i think i'm gonna go to church because i hear a lot of things about like like destruction and god destroying everybody i don't think that's what it's about i'm gonna go check it out and, and they sit and they hear this and they're like oh see it's exactly what i thought that's why i didn't go all these years first off i'm glad you're here um second i um i'm gonna try to bring some perspective to this. Um, everything is, everything is, 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 has some context inside of it. Um, this was written at a specific time, in a specific place, to a specific people. Um, we forget that this, this letter, 2 Peter, was not written to any of you. It was written to a church going through something very specific in a time period. Um, and so we can glean knowledge from all of this, but we have to understand and put it in its context. So we're going to start off with, um, with verse 3 here. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So he's been having this conversation with them about false teachers. We talked about it last week. You might want to go back and listen to it if you didn't. Um, False teachers lead people astray by tapping into their flesh. Human beings are greedy. Human beings are lustful and jealous. Human beings have been known to commit terrible atrocities because we decide we want this, we want that. I want power. I want money. I want sex. I want... All of these things, and so all of these feelings are inside of me. It's called the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, um, and the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's how the scriptures define it. And Peter writes that the false prophet is the one who actually taps into that inside of you and says, yeah, I know know you want to be powerful, and you're willing to destroy people to do it, but I want you to know that um, God actually approves of that, and in fact, God's done it himself, and so why don't we join up together, and we're going to make the message of God about this. And that's where we get things like the prosperity gospel, that God wants people to be healthy and wealthy and rich and famous, um, or just that God wants us to spread his message somehow by the sword. Um, And it really screws up the message of God and and what God is trying to do in this world. Um, And so we have to lay out there first, every civilization since the beginning of time and recorded history has believed in judgment, has believed in judging each other, that the things that we do matter, that there is right and there is wrong, and that we more or less try to make laws to keep the bad things from happening and to promote the good things to happen. And when people commit the bad things, we tend to find some way to kick them out of the community. Um, In ancient times, before prisons and stuff, death was the only way. You would kill people. Um, um, Later on, there was sort of ostracism. Now we have prisons, and now we have this massive system, and we even see that that's not working. There's got to be some other way to keep evil from affecting us. But however you view this, every culture on any part of the world, any side of society throughout history has believed in judgment. We look at something and we say, this is right, this is wrong, this is not helpful, this is helpful to what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish. And so we're going to pass laws. And so judgment is not this foreign thing that we push out there onto a God, it's the thing that we all believe in, even right down to our very own households. There's things we do in my house and things we don't do in my house. And if you do those things that you're not supposed to do, there is punishment. And so um, there's a lot in scriptures about what happens when you choose one path over another. Scriptures are clear that God gave us a way to live, um, a way that is flourishing and life giving. And it's centered on who He is, that we were created in the image of God. God is loving, He's merciful, He's gracious, He's forgiving, um, He's a servant. Um, He pours himself out for us so that we can have life. And so the actual legitimate descriptions we have of God throughout Scripture describe a God like this. And so in Scriptures, whenever you see a people group living in a way that is oppressive to other people for whatever gain their flesh wants, um, there is a huge pushback. And so you see it. This week I spent a lot of time for some reason studying Isaiah 10. Um, And it says this, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? And so the message there is is, is Isaiah sees Israel, God's people, and the way that they're acting and they're living unjustly and they're passing unjust laws. And he looks at them and he says... What are you going to do when you finally get, when the seeds that you're planting grow in your own midst? When you are being destroyed by the very thing that you created? What are you going to do then? Who is going to save you? Who is it going to be? And so, what he describes here, and what, what the people of God, the Israelites, and the Christians today have always believed is that evil does get punished. We, we, we live in, it's kind of like when you're at the beach and, and everything looks flat at the horizon and the sun is going down and it's, it's going down behind this straight line. But if you were to back up a long ways, you would see that this is not a straight line at all, that this is a giant circle. But, but where you are, this is all you can see because that is the perspective that you have. There's this line that, that Martin Luther King said where he said, um, the, I'm trying to get this right, the, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He didn't make that up, that actually came from a... Um, a priest in about 1812 who described um, who he, Martin Luther King is paraphrasing what this priest said. He, said he said I have a limited view from where I am I can stand here and I can see um, only it, that it looks like the evil are prevailing but if I back up I, I would know that the arc of the universe is very very long and it bends towards justice in other words God is in the end doing something He is working. He is changing things. I know we like to think that people are getting away with things, but the message of scriptures is actually that nobody ever really gets away with anything. That the things that we do matter. And that it matters whether you love your children or you beat them. And that it matters. And that you will answer. And so... This is the context in which he's working here. And so Peter's writing to people who are being led, led astray by false teachers. And he says, I want you to think about what you're doing. Historically, evil has not prevailed for very long. It has always fallen. There has never been a successful nation built upon evil. They have all fallen. And so what he does here is he points backwards... He points backwards to look forwards, and so he says this. He says, their condemnation, talking about the false teachers, from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. I know the people there, he writes this because the people believe that they were just getting away with things. And remember, these people were under persecution of Nero as well. And so they're, they're, they're thinking, that these false teachers are leading people astray and getting away with it. Um, the Roman Empire is doing terrible things, and they're getting away with it. And Peter writes them and says, no, they're not. From your perspective, it appears that they are, but nobody ever gets away with anything. He says, Their condemnation from long ago is idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then he, and then he, he points backwards, like I said, to look forwards. So he points back at three different stories um, that are theirs, that they believed, and they're a little hard to understand. I'm going to do my best to explain. Okay, so it says in verse 4 For God did not spare. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, this is a really interesting passage, uh, mainly because everything you read about this, if you actually get into what scholars talk to us about this, they they say that this doesn't fit in with any kind of Jewish theology at all. This is not a Hebrew idea. Um, This is not... The the words that are used in this story, some people have tried to say, oh, it fits in with Genesis 6. It doesn't. It doesn't fit in with Genesis 6. It doesn't fit in with anything. Um, This is actually saying that people who... The angels who turn on God, uh, God locked up. But then you have this first century ideas that they were loose and they were tempting people and working with the dark side. So all of this interesting stuff is going on. And then you get even farther and you see that the word used for hell is not actually a Hebrew word at all. It's the word Tartarus. It's Greek mythology. It means a level below Hades. And so he's talking about something completely different that we actually don't have a window into. We have to remember when we're reading these books, we're actually eavesdropping on ancient conversations the people he's writing to obviously knew what he was talking about. Maybe it was some cultural thing. Maybe it was just a story in their city. We we have no idea. I I can't begin to make sense of it. Um, So Tartarus is actually the place where, if you're familiar with Greek mythology at all, there's this group called the Titans. I think they make movies about him now. Um, The Titans waged war against the god Zeus, and Zeus defeated them and threw them into Tartarus. And so there's like this underworld in in, in ancient um, cosmology. There is the underworld, which is Hades, and then below that there's Tartarus, and below that there's something they call chaos. Um, and so this is not That's the best I got for you. Um, and then and then there's this and then there's this other word, the word for chains, then being locked up. The word chains is actually the word cirros. Um, it it basically refers to ancient underground grain silos. Um, but around the time that this was written, it had changed to mean um, when you would dig a pit, f- like a trap, for a wolf or a lion to fall into. And, uh, and so it's, it's, the idea is that they're holding back this beast which can destroy you. Okay, so, um, again, we're, looking, we're, we're eavesdropping on ancient conversations that, that you're only getting a piece of it, and we don't fully understand all of it. Um, and so we have to remember um, that, that there is context to this, But we can look at the overarching idea. He's talking about spiritual warfare, and he's referring to angels, and he's referring to maybe an idea or a belief or a a cultural story that they had that referred to angels being judged by God. And so what he's saying is, you even believe that angels are judged by God, and that if they turn on God, God judges them. How much more are you, human beings, the crown of creation, the ones who God tabernacles with and loves and died for, and became, how much more are you judged for the things that you do? So he's, what he's doing is he's saying, even in the spiritual realm. And then he, and then he backs up farther and, and he points at um, sort of a, an earthly realm level. So he starts in the spiritual realm. He says, yes, there's judgment there. There's judgment here in this global realm. And he talks about Noah. He says, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness. And so he says, in the spiritual realm, there's, judgment is is real everywhere spiritual realm there's judgment in the global realm there's there's judgment and so he refers to the ancient story of of noah this story was ubiquitous it's everyone knew the story so of course he's going to refer to it um uh, and he you know the the story of noah is very theological to them incredibly deep and incredibly theological to them um they knew the story. They knew its deep theological implications. And, and it's, it's sort of like the world had gone bad, and God moves and acts to make it right. It's, it's a story about who God is. God is acting to make things right. Um, and there's one righteous prophet who's standing alone in the midst of a world that is all just proclaiming terrible things and doing terrible things. And things had gotten way out of hand, and things were unjust all over the world. And there's the story one righteous person standing there declaring the truth of God, and who he is and how we're supposed to live, and everyone turns on them, But those who actually cling to him are carried through the judgment to a new world, a new way of living. It's a story about Jesus is what it is. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. The story of Noah is a story about Jesus. Um, and so he says, yes, in the spiritual realm there's judgment. In, in, on a global realm, they're, they're, they're always has been, and always will be judgment. And then, he, and then he goes into sort of a communal sense, and he talks about this. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, he commended them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Now, the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you want to know more about this, um, I preached in the book of Genesis, uh, I think it's a couple of years now, seems like recently, but um, I, I taught through uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I used a lot of historical sources to talk about what exactly the ancient view of this place was. Um, we actually know a lot about it from extra biblical sources, um, and what we know is that it was a terrible place. Um, we know that it's described in ancient writings as a place that's very rich. It's actually, it's actually um, Sodom and Gomorrah are two cities of five that were called the cities of the valley, um, and we know that they were very rich and they were very hateful of the poor. There's a there's an ancient historian named Strabo who describes Sodom as this massive metropolis. Um, and, and some of the actions are described of the people. They were very violent. They were abusive. They robbed every traveler blind. They raped and murdered immigrants traveling through their cities. They offered human sacrifice. They raped young boys as a part of their worship to Baal and Ashtaroth. They tortured travelers, um, as a warning to all outsiders, never to visit their cities, never to visit the valley, um, unless you were one of them. And so it's this very inclusive sort of city of the valley, like mentality, like we are better than everyone else and we will kill anyone who is not like us. Um, There's even a story that's preserved of this rich man's daughter who gave a traveler a cup of water because he was dying of thirst and they executed her for it to make an example that we will never be nice to outsiders here. And so what we know about this place was that it was there, The, the cities were there, and Sodom and Gomorrah were some of them, and then one day they were gone. And... Um, we know that, that where they were, nobody has lived there for centuries. Nobody lived there for centuries afterwards. Um, and it wasn't until like recent history, the last couple of centuries, that people started settling there again. And we know that there was, there was sort of, they tell us that there's this layer of ash and bone and debris. And that's all that's left. And, and so there's a lot of people try to talk about the signs, but what exactly happened? It could have been an earthquake. It could have been this. We, we have words like fire and brimstone. We don't know what those are. Um, and there's all kinds of descriptions of how they, this could be interpreted. Um, but honestly, the Israelites, God's people, they didn't care about the science of it. They, they cared about the theology of it. It was an evil place, and it didn't last, and it wouldn't stand. And they looked at it as, that's what happens when you live like that. Living in an evil way leads to absolute destruction, personally, relationally, in your city, internationally, globally, even spiritually, when you choose to live a certain way, this is what happens. It's the story. In Genesis, you have two trees to choose from. There's one that's going to lead you to bad places. There's one that's going to, that's going to just give you life. What are you going to choose to live on? And so the story of the, of the message of scriptures from beginning to end is there's two ways to live. One is the path of destruction. One is the path of life. And so, he writes them these things as if to say, universally, all around, the things that you do matter. They always have. They always will. It matters. And so... Then he, he, he puts sort of a cap on the story here. He says in verse seven, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so the last two stories are these stories of these guys that were living there in the midst of it, but not taking part in it. And it's sort of an encouragement to you. And how did it go for them? They were drawn out and They lived. No matter what's going on around, you have a personal decision. You, you cannot control the decisions of anyone around you. You only control your own decisions, your own response. And so there is a weight upon you that your decisions matter. With what's going on, are you taking part in it? Are you working against it? Are you troubled by what you're seeing around you? Now, um, And so he says, if, if this is how it is, if one path leads this way and one path leads that way, and historically we look back and we can see that, that sin leads to death and judgment. And, that he said, and he ends it like this. He says, If all that is true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He says, God can, God can preserve the righteous. He says, Your choices matter. And I know you're terrified of of going public with the right decision because it could lead to disastrous, painful consequences. But God knows how to preserve you through these things. To me, this brings us back to Isaiah chapter 10. Let me put this back up here. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? And so he goes on and on and on. He talks to the people about how they're living and where this is heading, where it has always headed and where it's going to head for them if they don't change. And he says his peace and he's the prophet of God and he declares the truth. And then what does he do? If you keep reading, he actually goes into this description um, of him sort of leaving the town Climbing up on a mountain, and sitting down on top of the mountain, and watching, and what he sees in this vision that he writes down, he starts naming these cities. And as it moves through the city, if you track, if you open up a map and you track this, there's about it's, it's, these cities are all lined up about ten miles from the people, and it's as if he's sitting on the mountain and he's watching the destruction slowly head towards the people. He knows why the destruction is coming. It's because they chose a certain way. It's all very theological, and it's beautiful. And he says, I, I to- do not live this way, and he can't stop them. And so he says his peace, and he backs up, and he sits, and he watches the destruction roll across the land. And he says this They enter Ayath, they pass through Magron, they store up supplies at Michmash, they go over the pass, and say, We will camp overnight at Gebah. And Ramah trembles, and Gibeah of Saul flees. Cry out, O daughter of Galim, listen, Elisha, poor Anathoth, Madmina is in flight, and the people of Gibeem take cover. This day they will halt at Nob, and they will shake their fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion at the hill of Jerusalem. And so he's like, they're stopping to sleep, they're storing up things. It's, it's a very slow trek, and he's describing sitting and watching the terror of the people you love be destroyed slowly by the decisions that they have made and destruction is marching towards them and there's nothing he can do to stop it. Have you ever watched someone you love move slowly towards destruction? I have, many times. I've been a pastor here for eight years and I've seen this tons of times and, and people start making decisions that are not the way that we were told to live not the way we were commanded to live and it's like you're sitting on a mountain and you're watching the destruction and the Assyrian army slowly march towards their life of the people you love and they're just gonna be destroyed and you see it coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it and so you say your peace and you back up and you sit down and you write about it and you talk about it but you can't stop it and it's hopeless and you're watching it happen. This is how the prophets of God talk. This is the path people choose. But it doesn't end there. If you read a little farther, it it changes just a little bit. It says this in, in chapter 11. But a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The, fruit of the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and of understanding and the spirit of counsel and of power and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And He says, so the end, if you, if you read the destruction and how it comes, it talks about a forest that is thick and amazing and powerful just being wiped out and desolated and everything chopped down and everything's cut down and everything's gone and eventually the smoke clears and he's sitting there looking at the desolation of the life that was there, And as he gets closer, he sees that out of this stump, which has just been destroyed, there is this little green piece of life that is left. Everything else has been taken away. Have you ever seen this? You come into the life of somebody, and and you come and sit with them, and everything's been destroyed. They've lost everything because of the decisions that they've made. It's been this slow suicide. And he says, but I got there, and there was this little... Peace of life. And Genesis chapter one started all over again. And the spirit of God came and hovered over that and poured into that and it grew. And it, and it says that it rested upon him and the spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of counsel and of power. And so he starts learning, where did I go wrong? What did I do? How did I get here? And, and you start figuring it out. And then at some point it says, understanding comes in, oh, that's what happened. And then the, it, it ends, it caps it all off with the spirit of the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That's not this devastating thing. Like I'm terrified of God. It's it's this respect that there is a way we were made to be made in the image of God, and when we don't live this way, there is plenty that can go wrong. And we see that day by day by day. Now, all right, I got time. There is. Um, this is this is the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, the ruins that are left. And there's this wall here, and there's a little sign on this wall, and it says "Bema." Um, that this is a platform in the middle of the city. And there's one of these in ancient Greek cities. In every one of the cities, it's called the Bema seat. It is where people would stand on top and make judgments. And in ancient times, um, the, all Greek citizens were basically legally bound to be called to serve as judges. To, we kind of call it today, we call it jury duty. You get that letter, you're like, oh, great. Um, and so you're like, like uh, am I sick? <clears throat> no, I'm not sick. How do I get out of this? Um, but back then, you were legally bound. Uh, you had to. There was no way of getting out of it. If, if you got summoned to be a judge, you had to go be a judge. And everyone in the city would gather around, and they would watch. And there would be two, um, you would be the judge, maybe, if you were called, standing on the top. And, and there would be... Uh, two urns, and everyone around that had been chosen as well would be given two silver bronze, I think they were bronze discs. One, they both looked exactly the same, but one was solid and heavy, and one was hollow and light. But other than that, they looked exactly the same. And you would hear the case brought forth by the people, and you would walk up and you would drop um, your vote, heavy for guilty, light for not guilty, into the urn, and in the other urn you would discard the non-vote. And so all the passers-by would watch this day in, day out, as the trials would take place. And they had to take part in it. They had to watch it. And nobody would be able to tell how people voted. You just had to watch. And then the final person would pull them all out and count them all. And the judgment would be made. And so there's this little stump here, uh, behind the piano over here. Maybe you can see it. Maybe you can't. Um, it is where the sentence would be carried out if you were guilty and you'd be tied to, either tied to that and, and given you know, 39 lashes or you'd be beheaded. Um, otherwise, you would go free. And so Paul is writing to these people and he's writing to them about the same thing Peter's writing about and he's writing about judgment. He's writing about how the things that we choose matter and the things that we choose are seeds that we're putting in the ground. And then he says this, for we must all appear before the Bema, seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he calls up this, hey, that thing that you guys do, that's going to be all of us. One day you will be standing there and people will be judging you. But he says, but it's, but it's not going to be a judgment by the people. There's going to be a different judge. His name is Jesus. Now, this is really good news for several reasons. The first reason, the reason that this is, this is really good news is, is because you're not the judge. Jesus is the judge. That's a lot more encouraging than you might think. Because when you know people that are making these decisions that they're making and you're watching, you're sitting on top of the hill and you're watching their destruction roll towards them, you should feel free in knowing that you are not the judge. You don't have to make the decision of what happens to them. You are the family, the friend, the spouse, the lover, the community member. You're their neighbor. You're not the judge. Your job is to be the presence of God in their midst, to love, to react, to respond in a way, to speak truth. And then when it all hits and the forest is cut down, to go back in and to love and serve again. And when God starts doing his work, you are there. And so there is this hope. Judgment in scriptures is actually hopeful it sounds terrifying but it's hopeful it's God making the world what it needs to be what it will become what he's pulling things towards and so knowing that you are not the judge is actually very freeing because you don't have to level the punishment you can't fix them and you don't need to there is a God who is turning things to his own way you can't stop the destruction that's coming nor do you need to you are responsible for your own response and for not taking part in that destructive path that they're on. And the second reason that this is actually really encouraging is that Jesus, our judge, is actually capable of something that none of us, none of us are. It's called resurrection. And so our judge can bring these dead, smoldering forests back to life. He's done it. He proved it. This is, this is the hope that we have. The hope that we have is not in punishment. The hope that we have is in resurrection. That is the hope of the world. That is what we are working towards and trying to bring to this world. Peter said the resurre- uh, Paul said the, most, the resurrection is the most important thing that we believe in. And if we lose that, we lose everything. That God takes dead and dying things and brings them back to life. And so as we watch those that we know, march towards their destruction, their slow-moving destruction because of the choices that they have made. And as we describe it, and as it hurts, and as it's painful, we know that the judge is not us, and the judge can heal them, and the judge can make things right again. And so we respond with love and grace. And we respond with, well, how can I love you effectively? And so I don't know where you guys are all at. I know there's a lot of uh, heaviness out there especially right now um, and it's not just because of the events of the weekend and so I want us to ponder how freeing it is that we are not responsible for anyone's actions but our own and we are responsible to speak the truth and then be there to help and serve when, when the pain comes and so I hope in some way this gives you what you need um, but what we really need is communion. And so we're going to take communion right now. Um, it's, it's the body and the blood of Christ broken and poured out for us so that we can find life. Um, it's the great unifier in God's people. As, as you put communion out, the people of God stand and they say, yes, this is the answer to the world. Jesus was broken and died and his blood was poured out for us. He didn't deserve it. And he took it. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to spend some time repenting and talking to God about the ways that we are bringing destruction into the world through our own choices, our own decisions. And we're going to ask that God would help us to change, to become the people we need to become so that we can bring the kingdom of God into these places. The kingdom of God is the nation that will stand forever because it is not built upon the sword like every other nation in this world. They will all fall. The kingdom of God is something different. It's way out in front of all of this. It's built uh, upon the law of grace and the sacrifice of Jesus. So let's pray for that. Let's pray for a change of heart. And let's take communion, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are and where you're taking us. Allow us to hear you and to change. Allow us to respond with love when we are dealt hate, um, allow us to find out the things in our life that, that are contributing to...